0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. It's been a uh, couple of weeks since I've been doing the show. I had a doctor's appointment week before last and eye surgery on my right eye again last week, which was unfortunately not so successful. Trying to get my right eye to 2020, they got it down to maybe 40-20, but uh, didn't work out as planned. Couldn't do last week's show. Uh, doing a bit of a change up tonight. We have a great guest lined up. Dr. David Seaman is with us tonight, and uh, it's uh, going to be some pretty great material tonight. Uh, Dr. Seaman is really the pioneer behind de-inflammation research and publications on uh, diet and nutrition. And uh, he published one of the first, if not the very first, paper on this topic, and of course, uh, you're probably very little recognized for that at this point. Just like uh, this article you sent me earlier today, the doctor who started the whole paleo thing isn't even known for, for doing the paleo thing today. But Dr. David Seaman, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you know, I'm gonna start off, uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into this area of research?
1: Well, I was always interested in nutrition. And uh, after you go through any educational program where you basically just memorize words, so you're basically just living in the land of no rhetoric, just uh, grammar and hopefully a little bit of logic. But you're really doing a paper chase. So after I graduated from actually chiropractic college, I was taking a postgrad grad uh, class and it was being taught by a British neuroscientist. And the topic was was pain and, inf- well really it was pain mostly. But when he described the pain pathways for the first time where I didn't have to worry about an exam I saw these various biochemicals that were up on the screen and I recognized most of them and at least half of them I recognized were related to uh, What we eat and so that was 1987 And so I basically went to the library, you know painstakingly year after year after year and I collected about uh, Probably 10,000 in the old days. You actually had to have photocopies. So I've got I've got 10 uh, uh, metal filing cabinets, four drawers high in my garage, packed with papers, A to Z. And so after I got into that, I finally started writing some articles because you have to go through the grammar and then the logic before you can actually lay something down on paper or talk about it. So uh, in, well, actually this, before I wrote that paper, I wrote this book, which was the, the first book that I'm aware of that was ever written on you see a title: clinical nutrition for pain, inflammation, and tissue healing. And on the cover, you can see all those. Well, you can't really see the details, but there are six biochemical pathways. So those are, the pap- those are the pathways that I relearned. And so then I started to write more scientific articles. And in 2002, uh, I wrote a paper called The Diet-Induced Pro-Inflammatory State. And within a couple of years, that was being said. Basically, the way you can tell if anything that someone does in, in science is really valuable or other C values that they reference you. So it turns out that that article that I wrote in 2002 was then uh, very quickly referenced by researchers at Harvard on two occasions and Then my other pain paper was referenced by the director of pain management for Harvard So that was kind of my orientation. So I've been writing papers and books Basically ever since that point in time that kind of captured my mind more than anything else And so my orientation to nutrition and diet is really more based upon the inflammatory potential, rather than calling it a term like you know, vegan diet or vegetarian diet or plant-based diet, which of course is just code for radical veganism, or paleo, and I like the I, Dr. Lauren Cordain, I've known the guy for years, uh, but to me paleo describes an era and then an eating pattern based upon geographic location rather than, than looking at diet from the perspective of outcome which takes you away from the emotions of nutrition and eating is a primordial drive and food tastes good or not so good. And we tend to like food that tastes kind of sugary, salty, fatty, and that could be some really bad food, like down the South, like hush puppies are just lethal in terms of pro-inflammatory calories. So I look at those, those types of foods for their inflammatory potential, rather than Never, or it's okay, or not okay. It's so, so I based upon the, the 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 inflammatory potential, and then as time went on, I realized that obesity. It was probably ten years ago when the literature started coming out first that that the obesity state, which is which is created by over consuming calories, usually sugar, flour, refined oils, the fat cells they actually swell in size, and as the fat cells swell in size, they they. They invite in through chemotactic agents, which is how cells kind of communicate, a whole bunch of pro-inflammatory immune cells. And so the obesity state's actually a low-grade infection-like state from the perspective of immunity. No fever, but the immune profile is identical to a viral infection and cancer when one crosses into the obesity threshold. So that's basically the kind of the orientation.
0: How did you uh, manage to come across my research and show...
1: Well, that's a good question because when I realized that uh, television was a complete waste of time, which I've known for a long time, but then when YouTube started to kind of kick in and you start looking around for information that would be um, educational to me from the perspective of whether it be science or, and for me, science is not so much the science that people talk about like You know creationism versus the big bang people in their brains They think that's science and really both are theories when you get right down to it since we really don't know So that's not what I look for but then I look at history and then I forget what it was that came up I forget how the trivium came up, but that's when I came across you and I think also I came across your your interview with joe rogan that one several years ago and then you're never on again yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. 2011 yeah 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 one of the top three worst interviews i've ever had yeah yeah
1: so 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 it was that and i started looking at you know how logic how logical you were with with stuff and also how like painstakingly detailed you were and 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 that was what um kind of attracted me to what you were doing
0: interesting well you know, so, uh, and then, uh, so it was probably what, three, four months ago, you had sent me an envelope with the book and I thought it was somebody else. I thought it was a show host to who, whose name is David Seaman. And I was like, huh, wonder why, what he's right. And then I opened it up and inside was this and a donation. So thank you for that. And, uh, for the book and all. And you also included a couple of papers in there, which are in the other room, but, uh, so, you know, you wanted to go into more depth, and you had told me that I was, had a lot correct and some things wrong uh, regarding diet, nutrition, inflammation, keto diet, etc. And, you know, over the years, uh, I've, well, let's see, it probably started out with Dr. William Davis, author of Wheat Belly, back in like 2010 or 2011, I had him on. And that was explosive for a lot of people in the audience. This was before he was on Oprah and, you know, just completely blew up in the, in the no-grain world. And, um, you know, so he's really who helped me turn my health around. And I had been in and out of the hospital for 15 years, over 41 trips to the emergency room and this kind of stuff. Now I haven't been back uh, to the hospital for chronic inflammation and IBS type of stuff for, what, nine, nine, almost 10 years now, maybe nine and a half years. And so uh, Davis helped me. And then I came across, uh, as you know, Dave Asprey's work. And it was really when I started going high fat and getting over my fears of of what fat is and drinking butter and coffee and, and tea and this kind of stuff that was what really got my health finally turned around. I got rid of the inflammation, but it took me years to like really feel like I was 100% again after, you know, after 40 trips, 41 trips to the emergency room, I spent five days, five and a half days in the ICU in Peru. And I, and for, you know, for 15 years, I pretty much just puked my guts out, you know, and that was actually when I started the show, I couldn't hold down a job. I got into doing research and I started the show initially very leftist and doing research on uh, psychedelics and then realizing through the trivium that, you know, that that was all a bunch of baloney and I exposed that and a lot of other things on the way. But it was from being sick all the time back in 2008 when I started the show. So that was kind of how I got onto this path. And then I got, you know, Many hundreds, if not thousands, of emails over the years from people thanking me for helping them with their diet, nutrition issues, getting them off of wheat, getting them on a high-fat diet, and and I'd never heard from one person in the audience who didn't have a dramatic turnaround. And so then you contact me and you're like, well, you got it mostly right, but there's a few things wrong. So I'd like to come on and correct it. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do this. So well,
1: well I figure since you're a logos trivium guy, you wouldn't take it personally.
0: Not at all. I appreciate You know, here's the thing is most people, they just tell you you're wrong and then they name-call at you and they can't support your arguments or they'll cite second, third, fourth, fifth-hand citations and uh, they don't provide any citations and then they criticize you for not taking their feedback and it's like, well, you know, what's your background? What's the research? What information do you have? So you actually have some. So, you know, I appreciate real research and you've published actual papers that people can fact check and... And look at your data. So, you know, why not? It makes sense, right? So when you went to the
1: hospital all those times, did they actually give you a definitive diagnosis? Was it, was it a gluten sensitivity, a celiac disease, or was it no, IBS?
0: It was, it was uh, I'm bullshitting, or what I call IBS. And uh, uh, I went to 12 doctors in the U.S., and all of them are what I would call incompetent. You know, and I, I finally, I was at this, I was living out in L.A. at the time, and I went to this doctor who, uh, somebody just posted a uh, super chat, and uh, but I went, to, uh, he said, hey, boss, uh, you're conquering this. I've been low carb for two years now, lost 60 pounds. By the way, have you heard the new Teddy Spaghetti Cookbook? And I haven't heard of all of that, but uh, anyway, thank you for the uh, super chat. We, By the way, thanks for supporting the show, folks. Really need your help uh, and donations and support. But, uh, and now I just lost my train of thought. Where was I? You were doing the spaghetti thing, the Teddy Spaghetti deal. Well, no, uh, before that, what was uh... Uh, uh, that? The misdiagnosis. So yeah, 12 doctors. And then I was, went to this doctor out in LA and I'll never forget this. And uh, I I really pissed this doctor off to a, the point he almost threw me out of the office. And, uh, you know, so I'm like, you look, I need to get to the root of this. I want to find out what's causing it. And he says, well, you know, you've been to 11 doctors before me. You know, what makes you think I'm going to figure anything out? You know, basically saying I'm incompetent. And then, uh, you know, himself admitting he's incompetent. And then I, and then he says, so you're going to have to take this pill. You're probably not going to live past the age of 45, which I've superseded at this point. And uh, you're going to need to take these pills for the rest of your life. And I said, so your diagnosis is that. I'm deficient in your pills. And he just went through the roof at that point. It was like I just called his bluff on his whole life's fraud, you know, as far as dispensing pills for, you know, curing everything. And uh, so, you know, he just – he basically just wrote the prescription, told me to get out of his office. And so uh, he did not like that one bit. I was rather – humored by the whole event. And uh, so in 2009, which was, oh, probably three, two years after this, I I went down to Peru and I had planned to, uh, we, we had already planned to visit a uh, gastroenterologist in Peru. And so right when we got down there, we got to Arequipa and then we knew somebody who knew the the gastro, A family member who was studying medicine, he knew the the best ga- gastroenterologist in town. So right when we got there, we set up an appointment with this guy. And then the very next day, I relapsed. And I'm down at the coast in Moyendo. And we called the doctor, drove all the way back up to Arequipa from Moyendo. And they had the doctor and three or four nurses were waiting for me when I w- was wheeled in or came in. They brought me in. Checked me out for like five or ten minutes. Took me straight back to ICU for the next five and a half days. And so he, you know, basically what happened is when you're on this grain, wheat, flour, sugar diet, and I was vegetarian at the time, it basically just feeds all kinds of bad bacteria. Things like Helicobacter pylori and, and whatnot were out of control. So he gets rid of that, and I felt mostly better. But then when I got back, I started relapsing, but without the severe pain. And then like six months or a year later was when I met Dr. Davis and he's like, no, actually wheat disease is way more common. It manifests in like 40 different uh, symptoms, you know, so here, try this. And then that was actually when things started uh, correcting itself.
1: So you never got an actual diagnosis then?
0: Never got an actual diagnosis for it. Yeah, but, But it's, you know, it was pretty obvious once I you know, and I had asked other doctors, what do you think I've heard about wheat intolerance? And they'd just be like, no, that's like one in a hundred, one in a thousand, it'd be impossible. No way you're allergic to that. And uh, so they just completely avoided the uh, subject.
1: Well, you know, one out of a hundred is not that small of a number when you think of the uh, 300 million people in America. Right. And so and so the way it works ultimately, if it's actually a wheat issue, it could be a wheat allergy. So, So they redefined how, People react to wheat in terms of you know the negative effects. One is called celiac disease, and that is when you get primary gut symptoms, and they're terrible: um, and diarrhea, you can have fatty stools, aches and pains, and and so that's one out of a hundred people. And then there is something called atypical celiac disease, and I don't know what the number is on that, but I suspect it's the same or a little bit more. And the reason why is because it's so hard to determine. And no one's been tested for all this, but atypical. Celiac disease is when you actually have the, it's it's an autoimmune state. And atypical celiac disease, it it can manifest as just chronic headaches. And it typically does so as people age. It can also manifest as numbness and tingling in your extremities called peripheral neuropathy. You can have cerebellar symptoms, which means all your balance and coordination can, can be off as well. So that's atypical celiac disease when the symptoms manifest not from the gut, but from typically the nervous system. And so you have celiac disease, a typical celiac disease, one out of a hundred, maybe a little bit more. And then you have gluten sensitivity, which no one knows the prevalence of that. My guess is it's between five and 10% of the population. And then wheat allergy, you really don't know. But here's the thing about whether it be a celiac issue or, or a, a gluten issue, because what gluten is, it's kind of funny actually, to you know, to to trash Joe Rogan a little bit just 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 because you know why not? He um <laughs> <laughs> well the reason why I say that is because he brought on to his show this 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 person who calls herself Psy Babe, and it was a total hit piece on chiropractors. And like any profession, you have some good, some bad, and some you know confused. And so to just trash an entire profession, but she says she has celiac disease, and she says well it's a zonulin thing and. And, it's not, and Rogan actually said that he thought that basically gluten converts to sugar, and that's the problem. And of course, that never happens as being the problem. So, so she mentioned this 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 term called uh, zonulin, and zonulin is a protein produced by if you look at if if you look at um, a, a tube and imagine that's your gut, you have cells that line the tube, and then below that you have several different layers, and you have immune cells there. Well, the, the, the surface cells are called enterocytes. And what they do when they're exposed to uh, gluten fragments, gluten breakdown products, gliadin uh, being the most common, the zonulin can be produced. And what happens then, so if, if your gut cells, they're supposed to be held together tightly. But when, you, but when zonulin is produced, it causes the gut cells to separate. And that allows for antigens, food, and bacteria to be absorbed, and then down below you have a rich immune system there because that is your first line of defense against foreign invaders. So zonulin separates the gut and the gut, the, the gut barrier, and that and, and zonulin can be produced by by gluten and by the wrong gut bacteria. Those are the two primary causes. So that is why uh, IBS symptoms can literally Mimic exactly gluten symptoms for some people. So it sounds like what you had was a zonulin problem caused perhaps by more of the excess carbohydrates and That's kind of what happens if you eat sugary stuff flour and Fat with it those those three together Create a problem with your gut flora over time and then the wrong bacteria can multiply And when those bacteria when their are antigens that are absorbed Or or, or stimulate the 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 zonulin system you get this separation and you can have a whole host of bizarre symptoms so here are some examples of what so 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 the uh, Chromosome 16 is where the substance called zonulin localizes and you have multiple cancers schizophrenia autism uh, What else off the top of my head? That's a lot of them and and then neurodegenerative diseases can all manifest. I mean think about this schizophrenia right so you know, some people are crazy for their wheat. They are literally crazy for their wheat.
0: Right. Well, not only that, you know, and I had sent a study that I had located to Dr. Davis years ago about gluteomorphine. And uh does methapan or however you pronounce it, uh uh what's diazepam. The... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a benzodiazepine, yeah.
0: Yeah, found naturally in wheat. And uh you know, so that was interesting too. People are literally going through a withdrawal when they get off of wheat. After you know, it, it starts hitting about two to three months, but they start going through a withdrawal symptom. But uh, well, not
1: everybody. Just just so, so 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 some may, but but most people don't. And it has to also do with your mindset when you decide to give something up, because your because our brain is so powerful. Years ago, maybe ten years ago, and then three years ago, the Discovery Channel did uh, two uh, uh, placebo slash nocebos, more placebo, where they, where they faked surgeries. They did a, these old guys were all kind of crippled and could hardly walk. And you see they're all, they're, they're scraggly old Ichabod crane, kind of like gait. And then all they did was they would just, they did an incision along the joint line, didn't penetrate in there, cut it up. So they didn't touch any joint tissue at all. And they just told the subjects that they had knee surgery. And, and for uh, many of the participants, they improved substantially. And some people had complete pain relief and no surgery was done. So like, it's also like a, a dentist who remove uh, mercury fillings, which probably isn't a bad idea. Some will say, well, you may have this detox thing, that detox thing. So it gets into the person's head and then they have the symptoms. So I'm just suggesting that that, be, because not everybody has this withdrawal experience f- from wheat. Some may, but if but, but most people tend not to. Most people tend not to. So if you did, well, then you had a tough one. But the average person, it's like no big deal. Once you commit your brain to it and you focus on it and you realize why you're doing it, then a whole bunch of good brain chemicals kind of kick in and support you in your efforts.
0: Right. And you kind of get a brain fog that sort of lifts after a couple of months of not eating the stuff as well.
1: That's And the reason why that is is because, because the absorbed antigens – so, so, you have these various bacteria, gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and gram-negative bacteria have have two layers. So you can my fingers, two two layers, and sticking out of the out of the outer membrane layer is a substance called endotoxin. It's also called lipopolysaccharide. So endotoxin, when endotoxin is exp- or when these gram-negative bacteria are exposed to sugar, flour, refined oils, as the worst one, this is what happens: the endotoxin clips off and you absorb it. So scientists have done meals where they feed them high calories, like 900 calories of basically sugar, flour, refined oils, or just white bread and butter. And then an hour later, two hours later, they'll do a blood test and they'll see endotoxin levels spike substantially. And so when endotoxin kicks in, it creates an inflammatory reaction. And if you're susceptible, you can get what they call brain fog. So a lot of people with fibromyalgia called fibro fog, most fibromyalgia patients, they will have family members with migraine headaches and irritable bowel syndrome, all three of which are pushed into expression via an inflammatory state and endotoxin seems to be a big one. The best way to find this out is if you have a gut deal, whether it be gluten or whether it be um, IBS, which is typically caused by an overgrowth of bacteria, is if you eat, if all you do, like in my book, so in, in the flame diet, I, I describe gluten, and then in the other chapter, I describe uh, uh, something called small intestine and bacterial overgrowth. So if you wake up in the morning and your gut is flat, you got no gut symptoms, and then you just have a, a small, medium-sized white potato just as a test food, if you bloat from that, you likely have overgrowth of bacteria. Now, people say, my God, bacteria overgrowth is terrible. Well, first of all, people have to realize that we have more bacteria in our gut than we have cells in our body. So it's not like, oh my God, there's a bacteria. There's bacteria everywhere. And so when you eat a, a either white rice, which contains no gluten, or a white potato and you bloat, that suggests that there is a SIBO problem. And there's some drug approaches and natural approaches. The natural approaches typically are just taking a fiber supplement like psyllium and then peppermint oil and, and, or oil of oregano, really, peppermint oil seems to be the best. And that seems to knock down the SIBO for lots of people. Others need to take an anti, a non-absorbed antibiotic. But if one does not bloat from the white potato or the white rice, then you got to eat pure gluten. Now, do, do you know off the top of your head what pure gluten is called? May, we, we may have discussed this, but it's easy to forget though. Pure gluten. If you go to the health food store, <laughs> the health food store, and you buy pure gluten. Uh,
0: the, wheat germ, right?
1: No, it's no. actually called it's spelled S E I T A N with a thingy over the A. So, so they call it Satan. They should just call it Satan, you know? It, that's kind of how it really sounds. So you take a slab of Satan first thing in the morning, and if that gives you your symptoms, well, then you know you got a gluten problem. Now, that's kind of like a soft way to determine if you got a gluten problem or a bacteria problem. And the reason why you don't want to just go have a piece of pizza is because you got flour and gluten in the dough. And that way you don't know what you have if you react to it. But that is very, very common. So so one out of five adult Americans have uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, i.e. irritable bowel syndrome. That's huge. One out of 10 people in America have have terrible migraines. And so those are more likely than the gluten thing. But there's kind of an overlap between the gluten and the the overgrowth problem in the gut because, because gluten is rarely delivered to the human gut. As pure glutinous, usually gluten flour. So you're always feeding the bacteria. And the symptoms from that can be as terrible as widespread pain, depression, anxiety. I mean, think of all the common symptoms that cause people problems as they age. And this hits particularly young women when they're even when they're in college, more than young guys, because their guts are more sensitive. It initiates that chronic pain and depression that they can live with throughout their entire life and then end up like you going to going to Peru. I mean, and you and, and you just had to stop eating wheat. You know, it's just unbelievable.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and even bringing that up to the doctors and whatnot, and them saying, "Oh no, that's not it. That's not the problem." You know, and it's like how uh, you know they're just you know most doctors have about two hours or so of nutritional training. They just don't think in ter- they they think in terms of disp- of dispensing pills, not in terms of solving the problem.
1: Well, the basic way that no matter what healthcare profession you enter in America you're taught some basic sciences that are taught in a grammar like fashion and you never have any logic uh, imposed or taught and so therefore the rhetoric part of the trivium is 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 lost so they're taught to basically identify symptoms and then and then give drugs for those symptoms and in the natural world like the naturopathic world and part partly the chiropractic world and even medical doctors now getting into to a natural medicine, they typically deliver supplements in the same fashion that they would, uh, deliver drugs. So like, you know, what do you do for depression? Well, you give them St. John's wort. but see depression though is an inflammatory state. So, so, so depression is basically when your body stops producing enough serotonin and it's kind of interesting actually. And so what they do, they give serotonin reuptake, uh, inhibitors to keep more serotonin in the, uh, in the well active in the nervous system. And that is what St. John's Wort does. But rarely do you get cures from taking those medications so long as the chronic inflammation is going on. And that is the majority of Americans. If you look at like C reactive protein is a, is a is a general marker of the inflammatory state in the body. We should, have a, we should have a CRP below one. It's actually called high sensitivity CRP. It should be below one. And the average Middle-aged American, and that means uh, starting in middle age, which is basically thirty, because you, if you break our, our, our lifespan down to thirds, you have one zero to thirty, and then thirty to sixty. So that's middle age. So you're so you're twelve, 13 years away from hitting like you know the senior time. I hit senior like next year, right? So I'm finishing my my second third, and so when you think about people living from age 30 and on and living in that depressed state. I mean, it's just the most, it's, it's, it's the most miserable way that the average person can live. So, so, so C-reactive protein in middle-aged people. So basically starting from 30 and over, the average American is between one and three, and we should be below one. 25% of all adult Americans are over three, which means that the average American is living in this chronic inflammation that can give you like as like 10 different symptoms that look like 10 different organ systems have gone wrong when the flame, like if my wrist is the flame manifesting all these symptoms, you take away the flame and these symptoms go away. That is not taught in med school. That is not taught in most chiropractic colleges, physical therapy school, massage, nutrition stuff. They just don't learn it like that. So I kind of like learned it on my own after I got out of a chiropractic college, because I saw patients who had chronic aches and pains, I changed their diet around without really knowing like the whys and wherefores, just knowing that sugar and flour and those foods are terrible. I saw bizarre aches and pains and other symptoms disappear within a month or not, if not earlier. So that kind of got me thinking more about forgetting the names of diseases and learning their biochemical etiology. And it turns out that basically any chronic disease that you can name, same inflammatory state, be it depression, be it schizophrenia, be it um, uh, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, is all the same nasty excess production of pro-inflammatory mediators. The, the, mo- the most famous kind of ones now, they're called cytokines. They're pro-inflammatory proteins.
0: Interesting. All right. So uh, why don't we talk about uh, pigs versus humans for a minute? Okay. Okay.
1: You mean that pig study? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting. So, 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 so these, the, the, these uh, paleo research. I mean, legitimate. So, so the legitimate paleo scientists. Uh, the the person that you want to follow. His name is Lauren Cordain. So it's L O R E N Cordain C O R D A I N, and so Lauren Cordain and his colleagues, and the way you can identify in this world of medicine, nutrition, uh, you would go to a website. It's called PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D.gov. And so if you were to go there and put my name in you, you so you put in semen. Uh, S, now it's kind of funny. I like, like my last name. I mean, I, until I was maybe like, I don't know, maybe like seventh or eighth grade, I didn't have a science class to explain reproduction. Like, and it's spelled like a sailor. But when you hear it, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> so people say, you, you know, it's awful. So So people would say to me, eventually you got to do your own diet. I'm like, yeah, I can't do the semen diet. That would just be so
0: freaking weird, you know? So so well, fortunately, terrible. yeah. At least, so fortunately, uh, You know, uh, self-deprecating jokes. That's pretty funny. Oh, it's awful. I mean, like the, the,
1: the worst ever. I was, I was a junior because basically all my friends in high school I grew up with from like second grade. So semen was spelled like sailor, right? No right. big deal. And so then I became a high jumper. And if anyone who's listening ever ran... Um, or participated in field events, they call up three of the participants. So it would be uh, Irvin is up and Rogan is on deck and Seaman is in the hole. (laughs) Yeah, so so that was just like, needless to say, I didn't clear the bar on, on on that particular jump. So Man, now I forgot I, I forgot where, where I was going with that. It just seemed like the good time for the old semen joke. What were we talking about?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, we were talking about pigs, the pigs. The pigs yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, the pigs. So uh, so Lauren Cordain is the only guy you want to follow and 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 his research colleagues. And I'm pretty sure that the pig diet was done by Stefan Lindeberg, a Swedish paleo researcher who does a lot of did did a lot of papers with Cordain before he passed away. So what they did is they fed uh, these two groups of pigs. A, a it was actually you will know, you call it a high carbohydrate diet in a scientific sense not the not the uh the typical layperson's view of what high carb means because this high carb diet was basically just vegetables some of which were were potatoes and turnips and some fish and meat and so that is and so it was a low fat high vegetation that was that technically would be a high carb diet so that's why i don't like that language a lot of the time so they fed about oh, I forget how many calories they, they fed, basically about 4,500 calories in each group. And the other group, they fed a, the standard pig grain diet. And the animals that basically ate the same amount of calories, the grain diet animals, their CRP was twice as high or three times as high as the vegetation diet. They gained more body fat, their blood pressure was worse, even though the calories were were pretty similar demonstrating that like living on grains, like to be a breaditarian is a real problem. And so when people hear that, they think, oh my God, I can never have grains again. And I can tell you that if you were to, if you don't react, not not saying that you should, but if you didn't react to say brown rice, it wouldn't kill you to have a bowl, you know, a small bowl of brown rice every day. That's, That's not gonna screw you up unless you're a reactor to that. So when people start thinking about, I gotta change my diet around, I can never have dessert again, I can never have grains again. They, they freak out their amygdala, which is like the, the, uh, the part of your brain that essentially operates to detect threat and creates fear. And then you get uh, a defensive, aggressive, fleeing fight or flight reactions. When someone says you can never eat that again, they wig out. And so, so I would say that for people listening, that diet shows that living on grains is a stupid move. And if you look at all your whole foods, you take, for example, whole grains, legumes, vegetation, all your various potatoes, your, your, your sweet potatoes and your yams, and then, and then your meat and cheese and on and on. The least nutritious on a calorie by calorie uh, measurement are whole grains. I mean, they are the least nutritious of all your whole foods. And so the fact that they have been recommended forever by the USDA, since I sent you that image from Simple Suppers Are Best from back in 1919, where the USDA said, Simple Suppers Are Best, feed your children uh, cookies, bread, and milk, 1919, so that's 100 years ago. And so 100 years later, what does the average American eat, eat mostly? Sugar, flour, and milk, or dairy in the form of more ice cream and everything else. So we, we basically complied with our, you know, the the, the oligarch nutrition masters. And the thing about that too, is that the stuff tastes good. And so if someone's going to tell you it's good, even though it's terrible, are you pulling that picture up? You know, I'm
0: looking for it. I'm not finding it here. Sorry.
1: That's all right. Nope, no problem. But, but anyway, if you, if, 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 if people just Google simple suppers are best and, that hit, and then hit images, They will see this cute little girl about six years of age in the garb of 1919, with 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 milk, cookies, and and bread in front of her. Like how could how could I mean everybody back then knew. Like my great grandfather migrated, fortunately before World War One from from uh, what's now Slovakia, and I mean all they did was grow everything, so they knew vegetables, fish, meat. Normal dairy, healthy dairy is all normal, and people lived on it forever and ever. And then, and then, and then the USDA steps in and says, "Now feed your kids cookies and milk." I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable. So that's kind of a beer off your off the pig study. But the pig study shows us that vegetation is the way to go, unless, like you know, it's really interesting with that Jordan Peterson craze, where because I did a video, it's it's uh, on my Deflame Nutrition channel that goes over the carnivore diet. And people get it wrong completely. Like people did lots of videos. Jordan Peterson, my hero, is eating only meat, therefore I will. I mean, that's kind of just, well, I mean, it's just not a lot of gray matter, white matter being used to make that move. He and his daughter fell into that disease because of their autoimmune problems. So the only people on Earth who would ever eat only meat for periods of time would be if you're living way up in the Arctic Circle, because that's all you have, is fatty meats. And so the carnivore diet is actually a very high-fat diet. And there is this uh, anthropologist from from Canada, he he went up and hung out with the Arctic Circle natives, and uh, it took about two weeks to acclimatize to the high-fat diet. But this guy lived for nine years on just meat. This is like 1909, he comes back, he tells the scientists, whatever school he was affiliated with back then, yeah, what we do is eat meat, everyone feels great, like impossible, we should have heart disease. So this guy checks himself into Bellevue. Now Bellevue now is crazy though, right? Like the Looney bin, hospital in New York, but back then it was a regular hospital. And so, so, so every meal he ate for a year was fatty meat. And at the end of that year, no ill health and no un, unhealthy cardiovascular markers. So it's been known, for over a hundred years, and there were papers written on it back in the early 1900s that showed, you know, that outlined his his approach. So all the people who follow this like, you know, all meat diet just because Jordan Peterson was doing it is just, it demonstrates the lack of logos that like you can find basically everywhere. So yeah, I would think that the the, the pig diet really outlines clearly how bad it is to, to, to have a grain based
0: diet. Uh, well, which is of course the foundation of the food pyramid, which is right. Joke. You know, it's like several years ago, South Park did an episode where they, you know, Cartman is having this dream and turn over the pyramid, you know, and they're all, <laughs> and the kids are in South Park going around licking butter pops, you know.
1: <laughs> Unbelievable, yeah, yeah. It's 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 really terrible. And the problem when it comes to to those foods is that is that the the. The tasty, sugary, floury, oily, salty you know, combination, it stimulates parts of our brain that other substances like alcohol and cocaine stimulate. And what you get is a pleasure experience. And then what's different for food is that you get the withdrawal effect typically right after you finish your bowl of ice cream. Like as you get to the very end of it, like, oh, and it's gone, and now you have that, uh, oh, you know, it's and you and you want more. If you don't Worry about it, you wake up the next morning, it's not a big deal. But in that moment, you have a withdrawal effect once you finish eating something tasty, which is why people will say, if I start eating ice cream, I eat the whole damn thing. If I eat some cookies, I just keep eating them. And the reason why is because when you're when you're getting what what I call dietary crack, you're getting it the the hit moment to moment to moment. And the only time you have the pleasure is when it's on your tongue. You know, once you swallow it, there are no esophageal receptors that are saying, oh man, this is so good going down. No, it only tastes good in your mouth. And that's why people keep shoving it in there, which is why it's so difficult for people to pull back from those foods.
0: Interesting. All right, what are the inflammatory foods?
1: Well, the best way to look at it is this. If, if you and I could eat enough romaine lettuce to exceed our caloric needs, so let's just say both of us, because we sit a lot, are, and I'm, I'm 10 years older than you, so let's just say my caloric needs in my sedentary writing mode is about 1,800 calories per day, and we'll call you 2,000. So if you and I both eat 3,000 calories per day of broccoli, that will be inflammatory. Anytime you exceed your caloric needs, your body kicks into an inflammatory mode. The issue is that nobody can do it with, nobody's going to do it with broccoli. So the way we can do it is let's just say that you're, you know you're you're a, a green bay packers fan and you got your cheese hat on and all you think about is eating cheese. Well, cheese can can once you exceed your caloric threshold, will turn the flame on. Subcaloric threshold typically not a problem. So the most important thing is hypercaloric intake, which is what 70% of the adult Americans currently do. So the first step for for hardcore dietary crackheads would be to if they're really struggling with getting rid of sugary, floury, refined, oily foods, would be to count their calories and get below 2,000, 1,800 calories per day, which is what the average person is where their caloric balance is. That's the easiest way for the average person to do it. And then if they get rid of more, get, get rid of more sugar, flour, refined. So basically, like the I'll show you the cover of my new book. That'll kind of show you. So right here. So this is the deflame diet for breast cancer. If you zoom right in there, you can see the healthy breast and then the cancer breast. Now, people who look at this, who are worried about breast cancer, they make oh my God, I had bread today. Well, you see, you have to just look at how many, how much bread you really have to pound down for it to be a problem. So if you look at pro inflammatory calories, that kind of encapsulates it right there. Anything that's deep fried is a problem so chicken fingers deep fried problem let
0: me ask you a, a question yeah. on that what if it's deep fried in lard or uh you know something <sighs> like that
1: well no one really does deep frying like the deep fryers in lard but if you just fry in lard that's not a problem the reason why it typically is because butter and lard
0: and and uh
1: and and, and So it's, tallow. it's
0: just yeah it tallow it, that's what i want to say also so it's the oils that are the problem the vegetable oils
1: Yeah. The reason why is because this is where you get into the omega-6 oils and the trans fatty acids. So, so when you think about like, like, like the term free radicals, uh, reactive oxygen species oxidation, right? So if you take a bite of an apple, for example, and you let it sit on your counter for a day or so that bit out part will turn Brown. That's oxidation. You can test this at home You take, you can take a bite of two apples and then sprinkle or not sprinkle, squeeze lemon juice on the one bite and not the other bite, and you'll see that the lemon juice prevents the oxidation from happening as, as rapidly. So that is, and if you like, you know, key a car, it's going to rust. So oxidation kind of means like your body's kind of rusting. So so the way these fats work is that the more double bonds they have, and and, it, and I guess I could probably find a picture of a double bond, but, but anyway, a saturated fat, what that means basically simply is this, is that, uh, fats, proteins, and sugars, their, their, their primary building blocks are carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And usually what you'll have uh, between – if you if you have a saturated well, – I'll just show you what a picture looks like so you can see. This actually help your people, right? Exactly what it looks like so they know. So let me find this. Where is it? I got like 50 pages on fats, right? You, should, you figure I should just get to a quick – here we are. We're getting close. There we go. This is what – can you see that okay? Yep. So that is what a saturated fatty acid looks like. Hold it up a little higher. There you go. So you can see all those carbons, and you can see all the hydrogens. And you can see that there is a single line between all of the carbons. And each of the carbons, except for the ones on the very end, have two hydrogens attached to it. So a saturated fatty acid just means that all the carbons are saturated with hydrogen. And so listen,
0: polyunsaturated means that there are many that are not saturated where things can get in there and cause oxidation.
1: Right, exactly. So here and is then, And
0: then they tell us they used to tell us that the polyunsaturated were the healthy oils. And right. now, so can and you now see that we okay know it's the yeah. Hold it up a little higher. And now we know that the opposite is true, that the polyunsaturated are the ones that can oxidize and become toxic.
1: Well, the way this works ultimately is that is that if you think about, say, fish oil, fish oil contains EPA and DHA. And if you look at, for example, uh, wild game, they eat a lot of uh, greens. So wild game naturally contains uh, saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, and the polys. And so, but the polys are always in small amounts. Now, one of the interesting things about, about the polys is that it turns out that iodine is a very, very important mineral that protects your polys from oxidizing. And the average American is really low on the iodine intake scale.
0: Especially since everybody went to uh, sea salt, so now they're not getting the iodine intake they used to.
1: Yeah, it's really a problem. Stuff was, flour used to be iodized as well, and now it's not, so you have the halogen competition. But the saturated fatty acids, where you just see them carbon with all the hydrogens and no double bonds, they don't oxidize, because the oxidation occurs where the double bonds are. And that is why, deep frying is a real problem. When you deep fry, you have not only the, 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 the uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, you have trans fatty acids in there. And the trans fatty acids are, that are created in the laboratory are very different than the ones that are found in small amounts in animal products. And so you get a double dose of flame when you eat deep fried foods from the the restaurants if you're just frying at home it's much more intelligent to fry with saturated fatty acids and i think that tallow and lard are fine to use and butter as well
0: and uh, so somebody just asked in the uh, chat and throw up your uh, you know if you want us to try to get to them more quickly throw up a super chat but uh somebody just asked what about coconut oil
1: yeah see so it's kind of like what about coconut oil so here's the way i answer that question because it's an open-ended huge possible answer right so I actually did a, a video, it's called, it's called F- Coconut Oil Fake News, because the American Heart Association came out with this thing that scared the crap out of people in the middle of 2018 about how coconut oil is never good for you, it's going to kill you. So I got the paper, read through every single, and the interesting thing about coconut oil, which is what made the news, was that it was a, a three-paragraph section that made up half of a column in this article. So I go and I get the three references. I go through them very, very carefully. And uh, one of the references that they use supported the claim that the saturated fatty acids in coconut oil are killing anybody. So when you think about coconut oil, so first, if you go to the South Sea Islands, which is where coconuts, they eat a lot of coconuts. They get most of their fats from coconuts, not too much from fish because there's not a whole lot of fat in the fish in, in, in warm water. Uh, and there's no disease at all. In relation to coconut oil intake in that context, but let's just say that you and I are doing our best to be, you know, as anti-inflammatory as possible. We're eating lots of vegetables, and we're and we're basically at a 2,000 calorie intake level, which is perfect for us to maintain body weight. There's no surges of of excess calories, but then we add two or 300 calories per day on top of that of coconut oil. Well, then you'll have a hypercaloric problem created by coconut oil. So you always want to think about your intake of any of these substances in the, in, 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 the, in the overall dietary caloric intake view. So just to say is coconut oil, how is that if it's consumed at an appropriately caloric level, it will deliver you anti-inflammatory effects. It's, it contains mostly a fatty acid called lauric acid, and when lauric acid gets into the gut, The gut microflora converts lauric acid into a substance called monolaurin, and monolaurin is basically a natural antibiotical effect in the gut. So this means that coconut oil consumed in the proper caloric amount in the global view of the diet is fantastic.
0: Now, somebody just asked if they just wasted their money buying five pounds of Himalayan salt. I would just say no to that. Just get some iodine, like, uh, what... uh, seek help supplements or something to go with it so that you're taking that every day and not just, you know, not going without iodine. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. You know, when, when it comes to iodine,
0: there is the issue of
1: um, of, of people who have Hashimoto's disease, which is fairly common. And if they take iodine and they can take some, but if they cross a threshold, then it can make their, their Hashimoto's worse, but it it appears, I mean, in general, in general taking less than a thousand micrograms per day, uh, seems to be safe for most people, even if they have Hashimoto's.
0: I mean, I can't promise that, obviously. And what so, is what, what is Hashimoto's, just for those who don't know?
1: Oh, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid gland. And get this, in certain cases of Hashimoto, complete avoidance of gluten completely reverses the thyroid disease.
0: Okay, so uh, somebody just brought this up. So let's hit this. And you had asked me to bring it up uh, in the in our email exchange earlier today. So they want to know about uh, cannabis oil. Well, they're probably thinking Rick Simpson, not hemp seed oil. But, uh, you know, and I was at Costco the other day with a friend who's actually in the audience right now. And uh, we were walking through Costco. And, of course, now there's a big rack of whole of uh, hemp seeds on the shelf there. And I said... I said to her, "You know, most people wouldn't know that you and I were largely behind getting this stuff on the shelves. <laughs> you know, it's like we're totally forgotten in all in our in our in our part in getting that stuff out there. But uh, what about uh, hemp? And first, we'll start out with hemp seed and hemp seed oil, and then we can. If I don't know if you have anything to say about cannabis oil specifically, but you know, if somebody needs cannabis oil, it's probably because they have." Uh, an inflammatory response to something that they're eating in their diet. And if they took care of that, they most likely wouldn't need the cannabis oil in most instances.
1: Probably, you know, it's hard to really say, because we, if you look at, except for, you know, I don't know about the Eskimos, just because it's snow, they're snowed in so much of the year. Uh, but wherever you go on earth, depending upon your latitude, you have different herbs that are very, very spicy. And these spicy herbs have, these 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 fairly potent anti-inflammatory substances. Now, the thing about that is that is that those, so if you're in India, for example, turmeric ginger. If you're in Scandinavia, you don't have any turmeric and ginger there. You can have sage and, and, and green spicy vegetation. And so wherever you go, you have these spicy herby vegetation substances, botanicals. And so where, if you look across the, the face of the earth, you'll see that basically nobody historically was obese. So they consumed a normal caloric level for their, for their activity level, and every meal or every day, they were likely to take in some of these spicy substances. And so the CBD craze, to me, is just another craze, ultimately. Uh, I'm not impressed with CBD oil. Uh, and the reason why is because you get from... A, the studies have shown that when you just take CBD, people get zero benefit to a, a lot of benefit. And so it's just it all that is is basically a botanical having an anti-inflammatory effect. So, uh, when it comes to hemp oil itself, uh, hemp oil has a really good profile of omega, uh, six to omega three. So it has a nice anti-inflammatory relationship. So I think the best way to get hemp is to do the whole hemp seeds, because then you get all the phytonutrients, the protein, it's fantastic in terms of, of, of not creating a, a blood glucose surge. And by the way, a blood glucose surge after we eat is the biggest stimulator of post-eating inflammation. So that being said, that's I think is the best way to get hemp. Uh, some people will respond to CBD. So how do you find out? Well, you take some and see if it helps you. And then others will say, well, what about you know uh, THC itself? Well, THC works on a, on different receptors than the CBD oil. The CBD oil, they're they're their polyphenol-like substances, they work in a similar way that something like ginger or turmeric would work. But THC activates two different receptors. One's called CB1, which is the euphoria receptor, and then CB2, which is the anti-inflammatory receptor. So the way I look at all this stuff is try it. If you get a benefit, well, then do it. If not, then forget about it.
0: I belong in the kitchen asks, what does the doctor say about gluten cell mimicry?
1: I don't know what gluten cell mimicry is. If they're talking about, about um, if, you, if you look at the gluten peptides or gliadin peptides, they can cross-react and so that you can get uh, similar responses from, from, from substances like, say, dairy and other, and other foods. And I'm not, I, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but that may be what they're referring to. And there's a lab uh, out there, this is called Cyrex Labs, C-Y-R-E-X Labs. They do a big profile that check at all the gliadin peptides and then cross reactivity. So some people, yes, other people, no. So how do you find out? You do the test and then you see.
0: All right. And uh, let's see. There was one here that I wanted to ask you. Uh, what is the cause of chronic disease?
1: Yeah, chronic disease, of course, is like not really a, a defined thing. So let's just, uh, but but the way to look at that would be, uh, it would be low gray. So, 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 so if you think of what disease is, it would be, I don't feel well. So if I don't feel well, that means that my affect will be dipped. I'm not where my affect should be. I'll, I'll be lethargic. I'll be fatigued. I won't have get up and go. I may have aches and pains. And so as the flame goes on as we age, the flame heightens up, all those symptoms can manifest. So in general, if you just, if you just subst- substitute the word chronic malaise for chronic disease, it would be chronic inflammation that causes this. And the biggest drivers, so let's just say that you and I are perfect with our, um, with our diet and we stop sleeping and we stress endlessly. Well, that will put us into malaise land, no matter how, even if we're doing IV kale juice, it would make no difference. If we're not, I know, but if we're not sleeping, we're stressing and we're not exercising, the flame will go on then too. So chronic flame is turned on by a crappy diet, lack of sleep, stressing, and then being sedentary.
0: Let's see. You know what? And, uh, I want to get back into our, uh, list here, but, uh, somebody asked, uh, or somebody mentioned that they were, uh, lactose intolerant or allergic to all things dairy. And, and from my experience, most people are allergic to pasteurization more than they are to dairy. Do you find that true as well?
1: I don't know. Um, uh, the, when, when you're looking at, at, at dairy, you're looking at, at, uh, if you have a lactose issue, it'll be present whether you have uh, uh, non-pasteurized dairy or pasteurized.
0: If so I lacto- if-
1: so, so wait, so lactose intolerance developed uh, before there was pasteurization, because pasteurization is a relatively new thing.
0: So now, if I drink like if I go out and get the best organic pasteurized milk, when I drink that, my stomach starts gurgling and it it just feels awful. And if I by raw milk, I have no problem with it whatsoever, and it tastes ten times better anyway.
1: Yeah, I don't know if the, see that would not be a lactose thing. It's something else because when you pasteurize something, you do change, and everything is also homogenized too, and the homogenization can change it as well. But I'm not a, I'm I'm not really. I got basically just some grammar for that. I'm not. I don't have much logic or rhetoric to lay to lay on you there. So that's all I got for you when it comes right. to dairy.
0: All right. So what are the omega six oils?
1: So if you want to look at the omega-6 oils where they are, anything that's deep fried, the most common substance that is used in the deep fryer is going to be peanut oil. And so here would be the biggies. It would be peanut oil, and soybean has the least amount of omega-6s, but they've got a seven to one ratio. We want our intake of omega-6 and omega-3 to be less than four to one, hopefully approaching one to one. And so corn oil, safflower, sunflower, cottonseed, peanut, soybean, People think that grape, you know, grape seed oil is great. It is almost pure omega six. There's no omega three. So, those oils I wouldn't touch on a regular basis. Okay. So, let's just say that you're out someplace like I was, I don't know, last month and someone ordered uh, sweet potato fries. I had some, right? I had a hush puppy, right? Oh my God, you know, it's just terrible. I'm going to die. So, so, I I would, but, you know, well, well, yeah. However, you are sensitized. But see, for me, I don't react to those. So I could actually eat them without reaction, which is a real problem. It's actually kind of better if you, if you react, because then you know you shouldn't do it. If
0: I know I'm going to the hospital.
1: <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I, I had a friend who, uh, who uh, we went out to lunch a few times. And, and he goes, you know, every time I, I, I get these deep fried wings and these French fries, my hands hurt. Like, it feels like this. And I said, every time? He goes, yeah, every time I go. And you're still doing it? I mean, what does it take for to get into someone's head that, that how good the food tastes isn't worth having your hands like an old arthritic guy for the next several hours? It's <laughs> kind of amazing, actually. So those would be the oils. And so when it comes to like, I don't really think that we need to do a whole lot of oil with cooking uh, when it comes to uh, like, say, meat you can grill. I mean, I think that using oil for cooking should be minimized because it's additional calories. The average person doesn't need it. So saute your vegetables if, or, or, or in, in, in a little bit of water, add some spices. And if you want to add butter to it afterwards, then mix the butter in afterwards. And that way you have a much better chance of controlling your, your fat intake because fat calories do build up.
0: What if so, you cook it in the butter and add butter after?
1: Well, it all depends upon your, what your caloric needs are, and so if you're doing that right now, and and you look like the same guy, you, if you take away your beard, you kind of look like, uh, or if you add a beard to your Joe Rogan interview back, you know, however long ago that was, you look like you're the same body weight or pretty close to it, which means that your caloric, so again, it's 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 about keeping below or not exceeding your caloric intake that keeps the flame away.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm uh, probably within five pounds, but I wanted to gain see in 2011 I was still uh, coming out of the uh, whole see when I left the hospital in Arequipa Peru I was down to 114 or 115 God oh man so I needed to gain you know 50 pounds so that's different though
1: see you're of course an outlier an outlier shouldn't be discussed a whole lot because people who are... <laughs> well because because the outliers are not the norm you want to talk about You know, like I'm going to drink
0: my butter while you're talking. There you go.
1: Yeah. Outliers are not the ones who should be the focus of any conversation because then people think that, oh, my God, I'm an outlier. This is very common for women who are 40 or older who can't lose weight and they blame their hormones. I've seen this many, many, many times. And then the right approach to diet and movement kicks in for them and they shred 20 or 30 pounds, which means it was all in their head. And so I like to, you know, not uh, describe the outliers too much or get people to think, well, for me, I mean, I just can't lose weight. I just look at food and I gain weight. I'm like, yeah, you probably eat more than just looking at it. That's why you're gaining weight. Well, you, <laughs> you know, you can't walk by a donut shop and just pack on fat. You got to go in there and down a few.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's get into this uh, high carbo promotion uh, that went full scale in uh, 1977 with the McGovern Committee. Yeah,
1: that was actually an amazing thing. I saw one, and I I could not find it again. I saw one YouTube video where they actually captured McGovern essentially scolding the medical doctors who said, we don't have enough research to make this broad sweeping recommendation of fat limitation and then high starchy carbohydrate intake. And so that kind of like set it pretty strong into, into, into writing. It was almost codified at that point you know, you need 60. So when I was, so I was, I started college in 78, I guess. And at that point, and I don't really know, I don't know anything before personal. I don't remember reading about it so, so much, but it became kind of codified then where a healthy diet is 60 or 65% carbohydrate. And then the rest, you know, a little bit of fat, a little bit of protein and that just, and then they came out with the food pyramid, which is, you know, a, a perpetuation of of that, but it was promoted since 1919, and it just gets, so when you get taught stuff over and over again, and you don't really know what you're learning other than I'm learning what the word carbohydrate means, and I know this, and I, and I know what protein is, and then you take an exam, and then you go, and you got to memorize that, you spit it out, and you go into an exercise physiology book that says the exact same thing, and even though the, the evidence is kind of weak, but you're not that sophisticated to be able to ask the right questions, next thing you know, four or five years later, that's what you believe, and it's perpetuated over and over and over again. Why was that done? You know, I can't really, I don't understand why. I mean, if I was to really like put on my like, the the the, the reject what the oligarchs put upon us. I mean, yes, because the oligarchs want to keep all the good meat and vegetables for themselves and get the peasants to eat, keep eating the gruel. I mean, think about, right? I mean, think about about that. Was it, it was uh, was it Oliver Twist or?
0: Well, well, even Plato talks about that in the Republic to, uh, you know, to, to control the peasants, keep them on a vegan diet, you know? There you go.
1: I didn't know that, but, but there you go. So, 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 so it's hard for me not to think that there's some truth in that because there is no, even like when Banting, who I think Banting discovered insulin and, and they caused, they, they called diabetes back then, like, I don't know, 80 or whatever, 100 years ago, they call it a disease of corpulence. Basically, it's a fatty disease. How do you get fat? You eat a bunch of bread. I mean, how do you fatten up cows? They don't move, and they just pound them with grains. Yep. You're not going to get a cow fat. And and
0: people don't see the correlation with that either, you know. And and that's something that I constantly point out to people. It's like, you know, look, they're they're fattening the cattle for the slaughter with grains. You know, just right. You know, hello. So, so if 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 you look at the population, you know they're clearly getting the population ready for slaughter. I mean, uh, Loma Linda University Medical Center is not far from here. It's about you know twenty five thirty minutes from here, and uh, it's one of the leading heart hospitals in the world. Well, it's a vegetarian community. <laughs> you know how? Let's let's do the math on this. How does a vegetarian community that eats, you know, the, the vegetarian diet is largely a grain and legume diet. So how would a vegetarian community, the Seventh-day Adventist community, have one of the leading heart hospitals in the world? And, you know, it's, yeah,
1: it's, 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 it's a problem. So, so I think that your like broad anti-grain kind of approach is actually, is actually very reasonable because of all the whole foods. Whole grains have the weakest. So if you think about, for example, hypertension, uh, it's, it's potassium is like the key mineral for maintaining blood pressure. And if you look at on a calorie to calorie basis of, say, a, cu- a couple cups of oatmeal at 300 calories versus three or four heads of romaine lettuce at 300 calories, you have like 4,000 or more milligrams of potassium in those in the, in, in, in the romaine lettuce. And like 300 milligrams of potassium in the, in the oatmeal. So basically, uh, your, your grains have the lowest nutrition density for the key nutrients and the greatest chance for overeating them. And that is a good reason why it's smart to do what you're doing. But to be fair and to be accurate, scientifically, I didn't say you should never have them in the book. And the reason why is because so you have some some uh, some some brown rice or or basmati rice once in a while or even every every day, as long as you're not exceeding your caloric needs. It's not a big deal.
0: The one exception I'll make is uh, white rice, really. And uh, oh, yes, terrible. Well, that's the one exception I do eat on occasions, white rice, basmati rice, you know, but you're saying it's white rice is terrible.
1: Well, see, these are just terrible in terms of, 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 of nutrient density. There's not, I don't right. know about, I've, I've never compared basmati to just regular old white rice versus brown rice. Um, but if you're looking at just the worst foods you can possibly get in terms of calorie density, and I mean cal- on a caloric, when you compare calorie, to, it's very, very important actually. Because what people do, if you look at serving sizes, serving sizes are like a cup or a half a cup. So if you look at a, a, a cup of romaine lettuce, it's like, I don't know, 10 calories. If you look at a cup of oatmeal, it's going to be about 150 calories roughly. So you're going to get a whole lot more fiber from a cup of oatmeal than a cup of lettuce. So you have to compare fruits, vegetables, sweet potatoes to grains based on calories. And that's what I do in the grain chapter and other chapters. In the book, I show calorie to calorie, and then compare the nutrients. And what you see is that whole grains suck as a calorie, as, as, a, as a nutrient density food from a calorie source.
0: Now, in, in my interpretation, I just, somebody just asked another question. I'll get to that in a second. But in my interpretation, the bleached white flour that they added riboflavin and niacin and all of this stuff to is actually better or healthier than the whole grain stuff but you're saying that's wrong
1: i don't really know it's really because eh, they both suck i mean why even do it
0: really in right. my view. well i just don't even touch either yeah. so yeah now uh connor asks you know if uh meat is okay and, and you know of course we're both gonna say yes on that um i gotta have my ribeye steaks with all the marbled fat in it or i just don't feel good if i don't have at least one steak a week i don't feel well
1: yeah. So I think it's, 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 uh, those who are interested should watch my, I, I did this videos called semen is all over Jordan Peterson and the carnivore diet. And I make fun of Rogan in there too. He, he brought on one of his PhD buddies, Rhonda Patrick, where they analyzed the carnivore diet and she misinterpreted it to be an amino acid diet. And the carnivore diet is a fat is a high fat diet. It's not a high protein diet.
0: That's exactly, and so many people don't get that. That's why I right. eat ribeye steaks because they have all of the fat and everything.
1: Right. So I would just go. Uh, it's. I mean, if you can get nice grass fed stuff, that's that. That's you know, they're less fatty, but still, that's the way to go. Is is because because if, if they're grass fed, then you get the good uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. But besides that, though, I mean, I've had people. Who, who live like literally outside Omaha, where you're gonna get corn-fed beef, right? So, so this one guy's like 230, and he's got asthma, post-nasal drip, can't sleep, aches everywhere you know do what do i do i said just like eat meat vegetables and nuts and sweet potatoes or because i don't like sweet potatoes said, well then eat other ones. i don't care you Eat just, yams. <laughs> yeah, yeah, didn't do yams or white. does it make any difference just don't eat sugar flour refined oils avoid all those foods so he so, like so i can have steak oh yeah and so he would he started doing this and he 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 his his weight when he was young was like 170 like six feet tall and he goes, well, what should my weight goal be? I said, well, you know, what were you you know, before you started to gain weight? He goes, I was like 107. I go, well, that's probably because I can't lose that much weight. Go, well, then just what what, what do you want your goal to be? Because I'll, I'll go for 200. So I go, well, then go for 200. So I didn't say you got to go to 170 or 180. Go what works for your brain because. Well, your body
0: will stabilize at the point you're most hel- uh, healthy at.
1: Well, here's what happened with this guy. So so he loses 30 pounds, starts to exercise and run and starts to feel great. and then when he hits 200, I can go lower than this. So between 200 and less than that, his post-nasal drip went away. His adult onset asthma went away. His aches and pains went away. And he eventually got down to about 168 before he had a little bit of a setback and gained back to about two bills or a little bit more. But my point though, is that I didn't tell him to eat grass fed stuff and organic because there was nothing organic in the sort of the outskirts area where he was living. So he just got Basically, the Omaha ribeyes and chicken and fish and vegetables and all of those symptoms went away, completely went away. And this guy was 55 then. So my point is that you don't have to have this perfect organic diet to reverse lots and lots of conditions and symptomatologies. best to do it that way. But if you can't get to it, not a big deal.
0: So what were we disagreeing on? (laughs) <laughs> uh, i think I, you know there's like I'm, I'm i'm agreeing with just about everything you're saying it here. was
1: it was it, it was the oh. way you present it was it was the way you presented the wheat thing where okay you know, the wheat causes all these things wheat does cause that if you have a celiac disease or a gluten sensitivity or wheat allergy
0: what, about, what about acne psoriasis eczema schizophrenia all of that stuff you know uh uh arthritis. I mean, these are all things that fall under wheat and low fat for that matter, you know, and if well, you start you switching those up and going high fat and cutting out the grains, those things clear up.
1: Well, it's true what you said that those things can be can be uh, 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 gliadin induced. But I will say that if you go down to the South Sea islands where you can't have a high fat diet like this. So 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 this group on, in this island in New Guinea and and there and there is, is either the island or Oops. it's their tribe.
0: Hold on a second. Sorry about that. I just yeah. accidentally moved a window. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: So it's it's your your listeners can Google the Katawha study, K-I-T-A-V-A, and this population, they get like, I'm gonna say 70% of their calories from sweet potatoes, yams, taro, and then fruit. Right and then they get coconut, and then they get your warm water fish, which are not that fatty. So they had a low fat diet, but they were free, it was free of sugar, flour, refined oils, and it was free of gluten. And so they had a high so-called carb diet, a low fat diet, moderate protein diet, and they had none of those diseases. And they're barefooted their entire life from birth until they die at like 90 or older. And And so the real key is, Uh, and listen, I agree with you. I think that I, I never bring gluten home with me ever. And if I go to a restaurant and they bring out sourdough bread, sourdough has the least amount of gluten in it. And so I'll take a little bit of the crust just because I like the crunchiness and I'll dip it in olive oil or put some butter on it. But otherwise I avoid gluten. Absolutely. Because to me, there's no benefit from it. So why waste the calories so, so yes, I think that you're right, but you have to just put it in, you know, kind of like the right framework because, because, because the high fat works for you it's, if you, if you were to move to Catawba, you couldn't really do that unless you just ate coconut all day long. And no one there does that. <laughs> you find a nice Katavan bride. She's going right. to feed you. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I know one other thing I disagree with you on, microwave ovens. <laughs> okay. I don't, I
1: don't disagree with you. I don't think that that's the best way to go. But again, though, out, of, out of all the evils, I'll give you an example of what uh, – so there's this there's – this, um, I think she's just a master's degree in nutrition. Her name is Sally Fallon. She,
0: oh, yeah. She, I've, I've interviewed her a couple times.
1: Yeah. So, so when Lauren Cordain came out with his paleo book, she just like trashed him. like, why would you trash eating whole foods? And one of the things that just, just twisted her up was the fact that he said, if you're gonna have soda, just have a diet soda. He didn't say do it, it's not a recommendation. But if you're living in this world right now, and and, and the language that, that actually scientists use to describe our, our society, they call it we live in an obesogenic society. And so living in this obesogenic society, you got to cut back calories. So if you're gonna have a soda once in a while, a diet soda once in a while is not going to kill you. That being said, a little microwaving here, you know, it's not going to kill you. I'm not saying that you should do everything, but a little bit. I mean, that's like the worst of the evils. The guy who uh, did some microwaving, who lost all that weight and had those symptoms go go away. So if it was that terrible, and if grain-fed cows were that terrible and, non- and non-organic foods were a problem, then asthma, post-nasal drip, aches and pains everywhere, sleeping problems, they wouldn't have gone away.
0: What so about you have to aspartame pick... though? I mean, that stuff is bad stuff.
1: Yeah, I would, if, if anyone wants to use sweeteners, which I think is dumb anyway, right? I mean, it really doesn't make any sense, but people, people, because they're dietary crackheads, as I call it, they want their fix, you know, they're like Jones and for a fix, The best way to go would be with what are called polyols, scientifically, sugar, alcohols, otherwise. So So
0: xylitol and that stuff. Exactly,
1: erythritol, because what they do is they have a beneficial probiotic effect in the gut flora, and they have no, and they actually prevent dental caries, and they have no glycemic penalty. So if you want to sweeten something up, go with those and avoid the other ones.
0: All right, did we cover
1: DASH? Oh, we did not, but that's just kind of the food pyramid thing. Yeah, DASH stands for dietary approaches to stop hypertension. It doesn't work. And here's how you know, one out of three adult Americans have hypertension. Now, most of them are not following the DASH diet, but actually most of them are because if you do a 3000 calorie DASH diet, you're allowed 12 servings of grains and just three need to be whole grains. So basically the DASH diet is really uh, the dietary approach to promote hypertension, the way the average American interprets it. So, yeah, it's a real problem because they endlessly push the whole grains. I, I I couldn't find it recently, but a while back I was looking on, I think it was the American Diabetic Association website. They actually have a food pyramid called the Diabetes Food Pyramid. And they're right. If you follow that program, you're going to have diabetes. You'll get it.
0: All right. And uh, somebody is saying, I feel like I'm in the 80s. It's all about... Uh uh calories. No, we're not saying that uh I belong in the kitchen. We're just saying we're still saying and and she's uh over the last couple of years, she's really turned her health around. She had a lot of problems and she cut the the grains and the wheat and the sugar and everything. Now she's probably the only thing left she may still need to cut is vegetable oils, which I don't think she even has to cut that anymore, but she's really turned her health around. So You know, all he's saying is uh, just find your caloric level to me. And you and I kind of talked about this before. It's, uh, you know, I don't even know that if it's so much calories that count because our bodies absorb nutrients, we don't really burn them per se. You know, so is it really based on thermodynamics?
1: Well, I would say this. Anyone, anyone who loses weight is because they eat less calories. And the second anyone does a, a diet modification for themselves They're like, so I'm putting my hand over the right side of my, of my frontal bone. And underneath that area is called, is what's called the prefrontal cortex. Further back is where movement occurs. But up front here is where, is, 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 is where humans elaborate thoughts. We inhibit impulses. And so when it comes to, oh, hell, I forget the reason why I was going there. Uh, Oh yeah. The, um. Well, I'll just do I'll just do do the calorie thing. So, okay. So, so the second that I decide to like, I'm going to change my diet around, I automatically, my, my brain kicks in and starts to reduce calorie intake automatically. Anyone who wants to like lose weight can lose weight on any calories. Like you can lose weight. If you're, if you're, if you're enormous, you could lose weight on donuts. I'm not saying you should. Okay. I'm not saying that you should do that. It's the dumbest idea ever. Cause you want to decondition yourself from those foods but calories absolutely matter. Now, I'm talking about the threshold. If you are at this if you need 2000 calories per day and you eat 2500 calories per day, you will gain weight. It is unavoidable. So, if you want to maintain your body weight, well then you got to be at your caloric need or less if you want to lose weight. And so it's not like a throwback to the 80s, it's just basic I mean, it's just basic physiology that the scientists have made a bit of a mess of it because they say, well, You know, fat is used differently. This is the way the ketogenic diet, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, if you eat 5,000 calories per day of butter and ribeyes, you're going to be one big fat man in six months, I'll tell you that much. You will not be able to burn off the extra 2,500 calories while you're sleeping and stay the same weight that you are right now. So you'll be in ketosis, but you'll also develop diabetes and heart disease and perhaps cancer over time if you eat 5,000 calories per day of fat. And that just needs to get into people's heads. I don't understand why it's so sort of complicated.
0: All right, let's see here. Radical veganism.
1: Yeah, that's a problem. So they, they changed their name around. It's kind of like uh, how, how the, uh, the the communist socialist, you know, changed their names around. They come out with new words, right? (laughs) The neo this, the this or the that. Well, vegan, when I was growing up, in the when I first learned about what vegetarian meant vegetarian meant that you only you never ate anything animal and then they came up with the word lacto ovo vegetarian to to basically mean a modified uh, vegetarian diet and then they used the word vegan to mean what it used to mean in terms of vegetarian so vegan now means nothing animal of any kind at all so as opposed to just saying that like the, like that documentary called what the health yeah what a dumb movie. I mean, just the dumbest. Um, they basically call it a plant-based diet, but a plant-based diet is in their, uh, the way they do it is pure veganism. Now, if you look at say my diet, my diet will be plant-based. So I'll have a bowl of, you know, a bowl of vegetation and on top of it, I'm going to throw animal products. So that would be the base is vegetables. I mean, that's how, that's what that word means, right? If you look at, What's your house built on? Well, it has a slab, so it's concrete based, and, <laughs> right? Yeah, great point. But 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 that is what that word means. So plant-based diet is really, I think, subversive. And well, so, of course,
0: and well, you know, and here's the thing: is you know, one thing that I've I don't remember who it was with. Uh, it could have been with uh, Dr. Davis years ago, but you know, the, the vegans, the tractors and whatnot going through the fields kill so much of the wildlife. And then they, you know, it's basically the religion is the religion. I I just kind of let the cat out of the bag. It's the whole thing is it's virtue signaling and it's a moral superiority complex. And you know, my having been a vegan for a while, all it did was land me in the hospital, you know, because what you end up with eating is a lot of processed foods, a lot of grains, and a lot of legumes. And so, you know, that's not stuff that you can stay, sustain. And then your fats, okay, so what are you going to eat for fats? Let's say coconut oil. Okay, so you're going to import that from the other side of the world. Is that sustainable? Do we, should we be buying, uh, you know, or t- partaking in a diet where half of your diet comes from the other side of the planet versus what you can attain locally? You know, so the, all of that is a problem. But then, you know, it's not really a vegan diet because what's probably sustaining them is all of the bugs and insects and all of that, you know, everything that's the, the dead animals that are, are in their uh, stuff. You know, the, the mice, the foxes, the snakes, the birds, the, the, all of the small animals that live in all of the fields that uh, these tractors run over That they, that they think they're so morally superior for only eating that particular way.
1: Well, I would say that that's a bit of an outlier statement. Here's why: <laughs> it's because, because I know
0: lots of vegans. Yeah, somebody said, "Bug lives matter." <laughs>
1: yeah, I would say that 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 is for some people. It absolutely is. That is, it is a religion. It's virtue signaling. It's moral superiority. But for other people, like if you're a Seventh Day Adventist, you know they don't run around with their with their shoulders out behaving all morally superior. I mean, some do because. Those kind of people are everywhere. I went to a Seventh Day Adventist school
0: as a kid, so
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I know a lot of Seventh Day Adventists, or, or 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 I did, and they were not uh, that that outlier population. Some people are just vegan for whatever reason; it it works better for them. They believe it. So, if you want to be a vegan, you still need you still need to get fats in your in your diet. And so, if I was to go vegan, uh, I would uh, hold hemp seeds would be a huge part of my diet macadamia nuts would be pretty much the, the the only nut i would try to eat i like other nuts but macadamia nuts have the absolute best fatty acid profile of any nut there is
0: so what if you couldn't import macadamia nuts from hawaii or from asia and all of this stuff what if everybody had to go back to eating locally how long would they survive on a vegan diet maybe it would be it would be very difficult a few days or a week you know in my opinion it's you know it's the vegan diet's more of a an urban religion, you know?
1: Yeah, well, if you look at any, any culture, well, and really I think a good example of this is you take, um, remember that guy, Andrew Zimmern, Weird Foods or whatever he was, he, 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 was, he was, was on one of the cable uh, channels where he would travel around the world and, and visiting different cultures and see what they ate, and they ate the weirdest like animal creatures you could possibly imagine. So animals I didn't even know existed, and then Vegetation I didn't know existed, but I never saw in any of those shows. And, of course, Bugs. Oh, yeah. Right?
0: Well, I've, yeah. I've interviewed, uh, what's her name, Daniela Martin on Entomophagy. And, uh, you know, I've had waxworm tacos and stuff like that. You know, my son had to get the the uh, the scorpion lollipop, obviously sugar in it, but, you know, he ate the whole thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, 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 when, so when you look at these cultures, none of them are vegan or... Let's just say it's the it's the rare outlier, and I can and name one that is that is vegan. And so, if you look at culturally around the world, going from the North Pole and then right down into Southern uh, Africa and Australia and then South America, you don't see people who are avoiding animal products. So I think it's a real problem. So so for me, uh, I would if, if I had to live off the land, well for me since I'm near the ocean, I'd be fishing. And then and then and then and then growing. I think that the best way, if you really want to get the best amount of calories you possibly can, is to, is to grow sweet potatoes, or white potatoes. And I say white potatoes because people get afraid of that one just because oh my god, white potatoes, carbohydrate, blah blah blah. Well, if you look at the peasant populations in Europe in the 1700s, to 1800s, the most healthy ones were the Irish. I mean, they were all beat up, but the Irish ate, ate potatoes. they will get some fish, some cabbage, and what and what were the Brits and the French eating? You know. It's not a correct quote, but you know, Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake, right? So just flour, so they were getting bread and other stuff was rotting. So they lived on the British peasants and the French peasants were basically flour based, the Irish potato. So the best way, and you can grow so much more potatoes uh, in a a, a piece of land than otherwise. That's one way to really like beef up your calories and Sweet potatoes, in particular, have a very, very minimal glycemic penalty. They got a decent amount of fiber. They get all the phytonutrients, so that's a good way to go. But yes, it'd be very difficult. So for me, down here in Florida, it would be. Uh, you know what's interesting? I didn't know this until recently. Is that uh, papayas in Central Florida, North Florida? If you get a freeze, they get hammered pretty bad. But you can grow them even into North Florida. You take off the green ones and you peel it. You peel it off like you would peel off. Uh, the skin of anything, and you can put it right through a spiralizer and get, and get papaya linguine, which is highly anti-inflammatory. So if I was to just live off my, my property, I've got 50 food trees on my property. It's a small one-sixth of an acre growing area. About 50 food trees, seven papayas. They're ripening like crazy, but I would live on, 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 on avocados, sweet potatoes, moringa, and uh the papaya linguini, and then fish well that's
0: and then you got a couple of people in the chat saying and you're leaving out gators
1: gators yeah uh that's true but i gotta I, but then I, I i have to watch that crazy gator show more and read the subtitles to know what the hell they're saying to know how to hunt for them although <laughs> although i will tell you the first time i ever came to florida was when i was 17 turning 18 a buddy and i by, by we we got on our 12 speeds in new jersey and pedaled down to uh, Florida, and we went. We visited his family in Central Florida, you know, his distant relatives, and one of them, one of their buddies, they were gator hunters. So we went out, then, like basically nine o'clock at night, pitch black, on this maybe twelve foot uh, wooden boat with a uh, with this quiet motor, and they would shine the light across the lake, and the alligators' eyes would be like this. They would be mesmerized by the light. And then they drive up on, they blast it with like a, you know, a harpoony thing. And the gators go flying all over the place. They get tired and they whack in between the, 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 the cranial bones. And we pulled in like a 10-footer into this 12-foot boat. So it's possible, but you need experience. So if that guy has that experience, well, then good for him.
0: <laughs> Seems like a dangerous... Uh... Dangerous.
1: I'd rather just take a fishing pole and go out to the jetty and do it that way.
0: Somebody asked, are you bragging, doctor, <laughs> about your fruit trees? Oh, well, you
1: know. But <laughs> but but see, but, but it, but it's a good point, though. Sustainability is really important. And so to me, like, why have grass
0: when you can have food growing? So did we cover uh, Rogan's Buddies?
1: No, we didn't. Um, I mean, do you want to do that or do you want to do this maybe some other time? We're pushing like an hour and a half. I don't, I don't know how, how, how long you typically do these things. Uh,
0: usually an hour and a half. We can wrap it up here. We can, you know, a lot of times people just go like 10, 15 minutes over if you want. It does, you know, it's not a, a very set schedule there.
1: Well, I, w- I would say this about Rogan, You know, like, the way he like, his, his, it's kind of interesting. He, he has um, three or so people who were on his show several times, they present themselves as paleo scientists. And to be a, technically to be a scientist, you should put your name, at, you should be able to put the author's name into PubMed and find papers where they've written on those topics. And so Rogan's paleo scientists, and we'll leave them nameless because people can figure out who they are. Um, none of these guys have any scientific background at all and they actually frame the paleo diet as a low carb high protein diet and that's not what it is the paleo diet is is purely a a geographic diet based upon what you can eat so you're in what northern california southern so southern california okay so if you go up to northern california well, the food would be different up there. What could grow than Southern California? Go further up into you know, northern part of Seattle or northern part of Washington and Victoria up out in the British Columbia area. Well, then you're going to have uh, different foods that can be grown there and different animals that will be there. And so... Food is based, the paleo diet is based upon what, what, what people consume locally. So these fake paleo, I call them faux or fake paleo or paleo posers. They, <laughs> well, that's what they are. You know, they make it sound like, well, salt's okay. Well, you know, salt it, it was not a staple really anywhere. I mean, you know, a, a staple condiment anywhere. And I'm not saying that you can't use salt but from a pure, pure paleo way, it's basically identifying what, what what people ate depending upon where they lived. And I can tell you there wasn't much salt unless they did some, extracted some, 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 some salt from the ocean down in the South Pacific. I'm not saying that they did or they didn't, but where would you get your salt if you're living in Wyoming? I mean, I don't know if you can actually get that. So to say it's a salt diet or if like, well, this like small little outlier population ate some grains. Well, that doesn't mean it's paleo. If you go from the Arctic Circle down to, uh, the, 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 what's, what's this, is Argentina. That's the, that, that the southernmost country in South yeah. America. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a different diet com, com, completely. And so then Rogan has on another guy who's a keto guy. And I think about this whole keto craze is this kind of disingenuous in many ways, because, because when, when the keto diet was called the Atkins diet, nobody wanted to do it. And the Atkins diet was,
0: well, you know, Atkins slipped and hit his head on the concrete and and died from it, and so therefore it was a bad diet, you know?
1: Right, yeah. I mean, that just shows that people are stuck in grammar and they don't (laughs) have any logic,
0: right? They have no logic at all, much less Never mind it was a snowstorm. He slipped on the ice, hit his head on the concrete, and died a few days later, you know?
1: Plus, Plus the guy was overweight for sure, so you can become obese on a ketogenic diet if you eat too much calories. It's that simple. So before it was keto, it was... Atkins, and nobody was out there saying Atkins is great. Just do the high-fat thing, and and in fact, Atkins, when his book first came out, at least when I first read it, you go to the you go to the uh, the, the the pharmacy, get your keto strips, and you pee on them until your until your keto sticks turn purple. Now you're in ketosis. So 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 why was it? Why is it only popular now versus back then? It's because people don't think for themselves. So Rogan has on this keto guy who was a Who's in a, in a lot of papers, but he was not a keto-like researcher from the start. He kind of fell into it because it was the movement was already going on. I'll leave, I'll leave his name unmentioned as well. So, if any of your listeners want to read the the read and listen to the proper keto people to listen to the most the best guy to start with, his name is Stephen Stephen with the P H E N Stephen or Stefan, not Stefan. It's you know it's with P H E N Stephen Finney P H I N N E Y So he got his MD-PhD back in the late 70s, and he fell into doing, for whatever reason, uh, ketogenic diet research. So I think his first paper was published in 1980, and virtually nobody knows who Stephen Finney is out there in keto land when they're busy bragging about them being the keto masters. Very few people know who Lauren Cordain is when they say, well, I'm a paleo person. A lot of these stupid paleo recipes, they're so high in calories, you become obese on these dumb, particularly these paleo desserts. Give me a break. If you want to have right coconut flour, kind of paleo-y, I suppose. Coconut flour can make you fat as a house in no time because the caloric density is profound in coconut flour. So you can be just this obese person in paleo land. So you want to learn about paleo, Lauren Cordain and his people. You want to learn about keto, Stephen Finney. So after Rogan has this guy on, a couple of days later he has on another guy, and. He was saying, well, I don't do everything for keto. It's not best for everybody else. So Rogan goes, well, this is going to confuse some of my listeners because of the other guy who he who had on, demonstrating again the fact that there's no, lo- uh, there's no logic or rhetoric in Rogan's nutritional world for, for himself. Because if you go from the Arctic Circle, where everybody is in keto for like eight months out of the year, because that's all you can eat is fat and it's a little bit of protein, you go down to... To New Guinea, where they're living, you avoid the Cannibal Island, of course. You go to the Catawba (laughs) area, and they're living on basically potatoes and fruit, and they don't have any of the cardiovascular disease, the digestive problems, or anything at all. And all of that stuff is missed if you don't sort of have the orientation from the original primary author type people. For paleo, it would be Cordain, and for keto, it would be Finney. P-H-I-N-N-E-Y.
0: What do you think of uh Dr. Kate Ramblues research?
1: I don't know who that is.
0: Uh she does she's done the research on vitamin K2 and regulating oh. calcium in the body and all that. Um I've had her on the show twice. But uh she talks about how uh essentially to uh, if I'm recalling correctly to summarize would be that heart disease and whatnot came about with the creation of vegetable oils uh, and and the amalgamation of, of grains, gluten, et cetera. And, uh, the, the misregulation of calcium in the body.
1: So the, the, the challenge I have with that is, and she's probably more detailed than that obviously, but so you have two types. Yeah. Yeah. So you have two
0: types of K You've got what's called phylloquinone, and she's talking about specific. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So,
1: so you have it's called vitamin K
0: one, phylloquinone, which is about clotting and not and not calcium mm-hmm. regulation.
1: Actually, it it kind of works. It kind of works. I can't say for sure if that's it completely because because I'll explain. I'll explain why. So if you look at K two, well, first of all, let's do phylloquinone. So you so you eat a bunch of green vegetables, and the the Katavins, who don't really eat a lot of, of your natural K2 foods. So you, you'll you find K2 in like eggs, cheese, and this really stinky ass stuff called natto, which is this fermented soybean, which virtually you, know, you would only eat in certain parts of Asia. So if you go back to the katavas, where they get most of their calories from uh, the, the, uh, th- the potatoes, sweet, sweet, Yams and then taro and then fruit and then greens because they've got a lot of greens also So they get their k1 there. They don't get any k2 in their diet So the way this works is that if you have a healthy gut flora The healthy gut flora converts k1 into k2 So if you avoid eating green vegetables And you disrupt your gut flora by living on sugar, flour, and refined oils You now have lost a me- the mechanism First of all, you lose the mechanism because of the gut flora change, and you lose the, K, the K1 delivery. So by default, you'll become deficient in K2. And so K2 in the body, it participates in clotting to some degree. But what, but what it does, it, it does kind of control calcium homeostasis. So if you don't have enough K2 in the body, you'll tend to calcify uh, your blood vessel walls. There's a specific protein, that K2, it's called matrix GLA protein, it keeps calcium out of vessel walls. And then you have a a, a K2 protein called osteocalcin in bone that keeps calcium in bone. So that's what she's talking about there. But the reason why you've got a K2 deficiency is because no green vegetables and the gut flora change, and therefore people need to take K2 supplements.
0: And she's talking about getting it from cheese, eggs, natto, et cetera. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would recommend checking out her book. In fact, I think she wrote actually the first book on it. But yeah to... i have
1: a, i have a bunch of the primary research from uh, the european guys who've been looking at k2 yeah two different types of k2 if you go look for a saltman you got what's called mk4 right and then you have smaller ones called mk7 8 and 9 right and it appears that the mk7 8 or 9 if you're going to do a supplement, has a be- has a more beneficial effect on the blood vessels and and for bone
0: all right and then uh let's see and and i want to get into the high fat air quotes term here in a second, but. Strokes are those cause? Uh, are those the same root cause as uh, heart attacks, heart disease?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all about. Uh, and and here's the thing about the way the flame works. Like if 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 my well we have to use my, my hand. If the flame goes on, it can manifest many different ways. You just don't know. And that's where your genetic susceptibility kind of kind of kicks in. So if you're susceptible to, or if you have, and really, where the the worst buildup of atherosclerosis occurs is where you have high turbulence in your arteries. Now, this is something very, very interesting. So if you, if you think about a blood test, you draw blood from your veins, clearly not your arteries, right? <laughs> if you draw blood from your arteries, you're gonna have a, a spurting event taking place, which is why you gotta draw from veins. So you draw your blood from your veins and that tells you the amount of your cholesterol level and everything else in your veins, but it, it's mirrored in your artery system. So why would it be that atherosclerosis never builds up in veins, only in arteries, even though you have the exact same glucose, fat, cholesterol issues in both veins and arteries? And the reason why is because of turbulence. If you take a a piece of vein and you put it into, say, replace a coronary artery, well that vein will then develop atherosclerosis as well because now the vein is subjected to turbulence. So no matter where you go, like if you go out to the, um, they're called uh, uh, the Maasai warriors. They're like the six foot thin black dudes in Africa where they basically they are called pastoralists. They basically graze their cattle across the plains and their diet for like historically was basically meat, milk and blood that's what they ate. And so when a researcher went down there and looked, or went over there and looked at them, he found that there was atherosclerosis, but they had big, wide open arteries. And so why would they not develop atherosclerosis there? Well, they had the turbulence, but they didn't have the pro-inflammatory factors that, that, that we have otherwise. So the best way to look at this would be, you heard the term tendinopathy before, well, certainly osteoarthritis. So if you look at osteoarthritis in terms of its chemistry, and you compare its chemistry. You take it as chemistry and you say, well, what is this disease? It mirrors atherosclerosis. And so you, so, so what happens is that joints go through their osteoarthritic process through the same lipid deposition process that blood vessels go through or tendons go through. So if, if I'm 250 and I just, I'm going to go run and I have a heart attack, you say, well, you know, you had heart disease and that's the reason why... You ran you you over you, you just overburdened this heart that couldn't handle the flow. And you had a heart attack But if I develop joint pain or tendon pain you say well, it's because you strain those tissues But in fact what happens is that the same pro-inflammatory Degenerative changes take place in joints and tendons such that normal loading and normal turbulence becomes pro-inflammatory if you live in a pro-inflammatory state and that is the cause of atherosclerosis, it has nothing to do with just your LDL level. Speaking of LDL, which is the thing that everyone's afraid of, the bad cholesterol, right, versus the good HDL. I mean, when you know the, 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 the trivium of it, it's like so moronic, it's shocking. Really? So, oh, it's just brutal, yeah. So, so you take, so LDL cholesterol, low density lipoprotein cholesterol versus high density lipoprotein cholesterol. And so think about this. The average person, they've got twice or three times as much LDL, really should be about twice as much, and sometimes it's less, but more LDL in circulation than HDL. If LDL was so bad, why would we have not biologically altered the production of LDL so that we stopped killing ourselves? If LDL was so bad, why would we always make more L than H? Right there, it's like, it's a suspicious thing. And so then when you look at LDL cholesterol, for it to be atherogenic, it has to go through an oxidation process. So now imagine you had a big old softball and it's called a big, soft, buoyant LDL particle. Once you go pro-inflammatory and become hyperglycemic, metabolic syndrome, obese, what happens is the LDL particle becomes small and dense. So would you like to get hit with a softball or a hardball? We all know the answer is softball. Right, the speed is just bigger, Dispersal will hurt less. Well, would you like to be hit with a waterlogged, fungus-ridden hardball that weighs five times more than a regular hardball or a regular hardball? And the answer is, of course, the regular hardball. So this is what happens. you got this buoyant LDL particle. It becomes small and dense, and then it becomes oxidized. And this oxidized LDL functions as an autoantigen such that you have an immune reaction that's no different than autoimmune disease. And think about this. Nobody, no, no one listening here, or, or if, if, let's just say 10,000 or a million listeners at, at some point with this, virtually none of them would know that your LDL particle is anti-inflammatory when it's soft and buoyant, pro-inflammatory when it's small and dense and oxidized. And the driver of excess LDL and reduced HDL is insulin. And any, no one taking a statin drug is saying, hey, listen, this statin drug is blocking the enzyme and the cholesterol pathway that insulin stimulates. So stop eating sugar, flour, refined oils, move your ass, get your weight back to where you were when you were younger than 25 years of age, assuming that that was when you had a proper body weight. That was a mouthful. Now, yeah.
0: now, all of this stuff. Now, when were vegetable oils introduced? What about 1910, 1915, 1920? <sighs>
1: I think the first one out was a, was a, was a lardy Crisco oil thing. It was a vegetable base. I think it
0: was some, some type of trans fatty, nasty. I forget what year it was. Coagulated nastiness. I remember though. I I remember this. But uh, it seems that, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned her earlier from Weston A. Price foundation. um, Fallon. Fallon, Sally Fallon. uh, She had found studied, you know, the first heart attacks uh, began immediately after vegetable oils were released onto the market
1: i have a hard time believing that that's the case and the reason why is because if you fatten yourself up and don't move you can have a heart attack on on butter and broccoli so so i would say this though if you look at your trans fats and 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 her some so so sally foul is not a is not a, a typical scientist but she did some work with a woman named mary enig
0: yeah correct
1: and mary enig is a lipid doctor chemist. right Right. She is really good. She, she passed away recently, uh, maybe within the last five years. And she read, uh, she wrote a, I can't remember the name of her book, but it's an excellent book on fats. So I would recommend Mary Enig's book on fats. That's a fantastic book. So Mary Enig was one of the first who, who, along with other researchers back in the mid early seventies, identified the pro-inflammatory reactions that occur with your trans fatty acids that are made from the partial hydrogenation process. And so that certainly accelerates. And what they found is the people who already have like a pro, this is not an Enig or a Fallon deal, but this is the standard, standard literature. When they, uh, when, when, when researchers gave trans fats to uh, healthy weight, normal activity, active people without any signs of heart disease versus versus the same age people with heart disease, there was a much more robust inflammatory reaction to the trans fats, even though they both took the same trans fats in. So when you're lean and healthy and deflamed, as I call it, you're much more resilient to all types of pro-inflammatory insults.
0: What about uh, going off, well, it's just following on the same lines. What about Dr. Udo Erasmus's book, Fats That Heal, Fats That Kill? What do you think of his research?
1: Um, I, I think that his book is good. I'm not crazy about his oils where his oil concoction to me contains too much omega sixes. If you're going to take any oil supplement at all, it should be just a little bit of, of a EPA DHA and, and avoid the rest of it and then get your other fatty acids from like olive oil and butter. So I
0: don't like you're, that. Part. You're not a law, You're not against olive oil as long as you don't cook with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really think that cooking with oil at low temperature is the best way to go. I mean, if if you think about the Italians and the Greeks, forever and ever and ever. I mean, they, if 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 you look at a traditional Italian uh, kitchen and the way they cook, they're not burning the crap out of their olive oil. I mean, they're like it's not like a heavy burning, smoking thing. Right. So 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 no, I'm not opposed to that. I just think that that we need to temper our caloric intake because pretty much everybody is overweight, and so olive oil is good. Not if you have you know, 300 calories per, per day of it on top of a high calorie diet already without getting rid of other calories. So it all depends upon the caloric intake. And the best way to do this in terms of markers, if you get a, a, a tape measure and do waist-hip ratio, so you get like around your belly button, it or a little bit above or a little bit below where it's the fattest, and then right around your hips where your hip bones stick out, where you pick up most of the glute mass. You do your waist, you divide it by your hips, and for women, it should be below 0.8. And for men, it should be below 0.95. Anybody who's above that, unless they're an outlier, we're going to forget about those guys, anyone who is for, for, for the average person, which is the vast majority, uh, that is the perfect way to identify your inflammatory state. It turns out that when your waist hip ratio starts to soar, blood sugar correlates with it, hemoglobin A1C correlates, C-reactive protein correlates with it circulating endotoxin from the gut correlates with it so that is a greatest simple way to identify if you're a flamer or not and then you want to get if you want to get below 0. 0.8 and you want to be below 0. 0.95 if you're a guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> a little nutrition humor is always fun you know
0: <laughs> all right uh yeah and then uh, the high fat term still scares people for no reason you know and When I started going high fat, this was, what, 2011, 2012, you know, it took me a little while to edge into it, and, you know, okay, well, I'm going to eat extra butter and eggs today, and, wait, well, I didn't have a heart attack, and then after a while, it's like, wait a second, I'm starting to feel a whole lot better, you know, and the more fat I ate, the better I felt, and still for the last, what, probably seven years now, I try to keep my dietary intake at least probably... 50% 50% or more fat per day.
1: Very smart move. Yeah. And it is interesting. So so you're a so you're a smart cerebral guy who thinks about stuff and and you and, and you trivium and quadrivium yourself, right? And and <laughs> and you and look at the power of your amygdala kicking in the fat fear. It's absolutely it 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 is Brutal propaganda and conditioning. It's well, just
0: for eight, eighty-five years of the nonsense, you know. Absolutely grains, unbelievable. Grains good, fat bad. Eat your, yeah. eat your, eat your wheat. And you know they did plan all those twenty gazillion hectares or acres or whatever of of wheat back in the twenties and thirties, and they needed to sell all of that stuff. So. You know, they wiped out the Great Plains, created the Dust Bowl, and had to sell all of the wheat from the aftermath of it, right?
1: Yeah, it's really a problem. I'm telling you, people should just grow sweet potatoes and whatever food they can grow in their yard. That's what they should do.
0: Well, but then they wouldn't be getting coconut oil from the other side of the planet and killing orangutans. But I
1: mean, but, but there are options. It is interesting. <laughs> there is definitely some exploitation of the coconut oil uh, producing countries, for sure.
0: All right. And uh, we got two more here. We have, you want to cover those limbic fears? Uh, well, j- you yeah, know, like yeah. somebody, somebody like me, should I just forever and ever and ever more avoid a birthday cake?
1: Well, well, you know, it all depends. You see, if, if, if that birthday cake trips you back into being a dietary crackhead and you know that that's like an enemy of you, then you should well, not do
0: I, I wouldn't fall back into a dietary crackhead. That would be dumb, but you know, right. I mean, you know. But for
1: some people though, they just simply have not worked their prefrontal cortex enough to to effectively resist those calories once they get a taste y-
0: usually so, though i just you know anything wheat i my body now just automatically rejects it you know if it's like see, a gluten-free cake or something i'll have it but which is you know like uh, dr davis said less bad is not good you know right, <laughs>
1: right. he's absolutely correct yeah and, and, and i like his book a lot actually and 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 so and, and he complimented the the That high fat diet book that was Nina T. Hill something like that came in like 2012. Did a decent book on fats. No, I would say that 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 the only reason if 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 I go to a birthday party, which I really tend not to do because I'm kind of a loner, but if I did, I would have a little piece of it. You know, why insult the kid or whoever it is, and you know, I have a little piece, right? So so, but but I don't like doing it because the thing is, I like the taste, and I do not see any point in activating that part of my brain, I don't want to, it's called the reward path. It's called the mesolimbic reward pathway. And
0: you start, you know, acting like a rat hitting the lever over and over. Is that That's right?
1: Yeah. Well, you, know that about the,
0: you
1: know, about the rat study, they just yeah. forgo. Yeah. They just, they didn't eat. They just sat there hitting that rat buzzer and they just sat there. They avoided sex. <laughs> so rats the rats are very social. They just sat there blasting that buzzer. Uh, yeah. They forgo everything. So I don't see the point in turning on that part of the brain at all. And so it's dietary propaganda, essentially, that that your brain is being captured by. So avoiding it's a good idea until you can absolutely control yourself.
0: All right. Steven says, eat to live, don't live to eat. That's very well said.
1: Absolutely correct. Absolutely. Yeah. But this whole idea of flame, though, the the flame idea is, you know, the, the question should be is, will this flame me or will it not flame me? So will it inflame me or will it deflame? Don't me? don't be a dietary flamer. Right. There you go. There you go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yeah. You know, just get that in your head. You know, I don't want to be a dietary flamer, and that should That's cure right. all your dietary problems right there. <laughs> yeah. And uh with all your dietary with all the dietary research that we know, Americans are fatter than ever. Correct. They- you know, and they want to put nine year olds now on statin drugs and that's not gonna solve anything. That's you know, because and we need the fats, and so then that causes, you know, your brain is made up of cholesterol and fat, so then and your reproductive system, and so then they're causing, you know, a a, a landslide of of future health problems. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, a landslide of, of future health problems by putting kids on Stanton drugs when all they have to do is get them off the soda pop, stop feeding them pretzels and cake and Kool-Aid. And I don't know, do kids eat Kool-Aid anymore, drink it, um, you know, and all of these things stop with the vegetable oils and then the inflammation will stop and they'll go back to normal.
1: That's exactly right. But That hurts. That hurts the big, big, big oligarchy industrial complex for drugs. Because if you you if if to keep the the economy going, right? Think about our economy runs on sugar, flour, refined oils, the drugs to treat those conditions, it numbs our brain, and then we just bomb everybody around the world with all of our other powders, right? So so that drives our economy. If you had a healthy that's
0: that's another conversation we'll have to get into later, but (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, think about it though. How,
1: how, and once your brain is, 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 is numbed and inflamed, it's difficult to focus. And then it's difficult to focus on your life, much, much less take your head up and look around what's taking place in the world. So that one is not then brainwashed by propaganda, depending upon the fake left or right wing that people tend to be brainwashed by.
0: Uh, Dr. Seaman, great show tonight. Um, you know, I think we've, Pretty much got through everything that both you and I had laid down for tonight. We'll have to get you back on again soon. We've got uh, more research and topics to cover. You and I had a really deep couple-hour conversation a few weeks ago and uh, got some interesting uh, material yet to go. And so I really appreciate your time coming on tonight. Um, do you, If anybody wants to post up any Super Chats, do you want to cover any questions from the audience?
1: Absolutely, whatever you want
0: if anybody's out there otherwise we're probably going to wrap it up here and uh you know thanks for all of the uh comments and great participation tonight and uh uh brian says say oh brian you don't need to say that he says see man
1: <laughs> here's the thing though if you want to do a semen joke i get, I'll give you that criteria right so you see since your last name is 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 urban is it could be uh Jones is up, Smith is on deck, and Irvin is in the hole, right? So to do a, an effective seaman joke, you have to be able to substitute somebody else's name in there for it to work properly, right? <laughs> so if you're a great defender, you'll say Irvin is all over the field, right? So that's the only way to enter the semen joke
0: world, which is fine right. by me. And, of- and, and for to make it really work, you have to be self-deprecating as well. So You
1: have to be. Yeah, that, that took a long time <laughs> 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 to deal with that one. Because like, oh, my God, this is a terrible thing. Now I love it, though. And actually, I'll give you, I'll give you one more joke. All right. My cousin with the same last name, he was a, he's a pilot. And he changed his last name to his mother's maiden name because he couldn't handle being Captain Seaman in the cockpit. <laughs> who wouldn't want to be that guy? This is Captain Seaman. Welcome.
0: <laughs> and that's a true story. True story. Wow, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Captain Seaman in the cockpit. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Well, that's hilarious. So I guess that's a wrap for the night. I don't see any Super Chats coming up. And uh, someone said, I lost 30 pounds last year, kept it off, uh, though a bit challenging, weigh weigh what I weighed in 1980, feel amazing, think clearly, no BS, deeply spiritual process, transformative. And I know that's the case for a lot of people in the audience. And there's a lot of people in the audience that have followed followed me from the beginning when I you know, was doing shows from the hospital in Peru. Oh, wow. I actually did a show from the hospital, from the ICU in Peru. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, and the doctor came in and said, well, I have good news and bad news. What do you want first? Well, the good news is, uh, you know, I can cure you and in Peru, They're allowed to use that word. Yeah. But the bad news is I don't think you'll live through the night, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> you know? So, uh, Actually, and it was, I was, they were expecting me to die on my son's birthday. So that was, that was tough. Yeah. So happy third birthday, son, you know. (laughs) But uh, anyway, thanks everyone and good night. And uh, thanks for all your support. Go to logosmedia.com to support the show. Uh, David, what is your website? deflame.com deflame.com so don't be a flamer get deflamed at deflame.com there you go and uh (laughs) there's all sorts of jokes of semen in the cockpit and everything else that can go along with that (laughs) awesome All all right everyone everybody good night and uh see you next week